hello, hello. Welcome to Center Ed Teaching. Today we're going to talk about a topic near and dear to my heart, truth. Uh, implicitly, schools are conveyors of knowledge, and knowledge that is truthful. However, however, over the last two years, arguably longer, the idea of truth has become incredibly complicated. We now live in a time when the president openly lies to the country, and there is no retribution or accountability. We live in a period of, we live in a period of incredible democratization of knowledge, which has been amazing, but has also complicated how we understand truth and fact and fiction. For teachers, the tension emerging from the coalescing of fact, fiction, and fake news has significant implications for how we mm -hmm. conduct ourselves as educators and what we teach kids, but also how we teach them. Mm -hmm. Alas, I am only one educator, and I definitely can't do this by myself. So today I have with me my good friends and brilliant colleagues, Roberta Langer-Kang. And Brian Vipreck. Hello. All right. So I need to get this off my chest um, because I'm struggling with this and I'm trying to think about how to approach my classroom and I don't know how to do it in this kind of climate. So I want to take the issue of um, Trump's claim that he was wiretapped by President Obama, right? A few weeks ago, he made a claim um, over Twitter, of all places, that President Obama had wiretapped him. Since then, that claim has been invalidated and proven not to be true. Um, the director of the FBI testified in front of Congress in validating that claim. But to this point, there are still a significant majority of the American population that believes that to be true. Right? So if I'm a teacher, I have to wrestle with not just whether or not I think that this is true or this is mm -hmm. false, but how I arrive at that answer because that's going to have implications for my teaching. Mm -hmm. So, Roberta, Brian, I'm just wondering, can you guys maybe weigh in, how do you view this wiretapping situation? And more broadly, how do you view the issue of, like, how am I determining truth in 2017? Mm. Yeah, go ahead, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, for, for me, the watchword is corroboration. Um, and, uh, in my, for example, in my Facebook feed, I've got, um, uh, given my own left-wing leanings, mm -hmm. uh, more often than not, I'm seeing posts from friends who are ideologically mm -hmm. in alignment with me. Um, and everything from, uh, uh, Occupy Democrats, um, to New York Times, um, uh, there's some, uh, sort of some left-wing bias there, definitely with Occupy Democrats coming more to the center um, with uh, New York Times, where I'm not sure that I would uh, call that out as a, as a left-wing mm -hmm. bias, but I understand how, how some would make that claim. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, when something pops up in my news feed, um, I immediately have to go do my research. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's literally what I call it um, to myself and to others. I just sort of reach the point where I view everything with some degree of skepticism um, until I have the every every news item, especially around um, the current uh, political situation, especially around uh, claims that Trump is making or claims that the opposition is making. If I can't then dig up some corroboration, I'm not buying it. Hmm. So healthy healthy skepticism, you know, um, suspending judgment until I can gather enough evidence that will let me sort of act on that. Yeah, it's really hard because as our news is coming in, it's very different now mm -hmm. than when it was when I was growing up. And you sort of had like five channels and really old, uh, like five channels and everything that was being presented in the news, whether it's from a newspaper or on TV, was more or less 
fact-based, mm-hmm. and you could sort of rest assured that what you were getting was maybe, you know, slightly left-leaning or slightly right-leaning, but that it was all relatively based on truth and based on what was factual. And with the, with the you know, quick changes in technology in the 21st century, we have what we've never had before, which is the ability for every man, woman, child, and troll to publish and to publish side by side, right? And and to publish and to publish side by side, you know, so so that you can have on whether it's in your social media, your Twitter feed. I just started tweeting, by the way. <laughs> I'm really not good at it. Do you know your Twitter handle so everyone can follow I you? I sure do. <laughs> I don't know that I want anyone following me yet because I'm really not good at it. But like negative twenty five characters, what? Ah. Uh, but. To say that, um, you know, you can have a, a Harvard professor posting next to a scientist posting next to, like, somebody who is trying to be disruptive, mm-hmm. um, and you can have, and you have, you know, lots of people or even robots now, right, who are who are posting things, and you can't always discern sort of where it's coming from, even when it's coming from organizations trying to figure out like if this is a legitimate organization or if this is just some scam trying to get your email address trying to get likes and clicks and copy and share and you know drive advertisement to my website that's sort of without ideology right Mm -hmm. without any kind of ideology so it's really tricky and I was talking with a family member once and about this challenge around like what information is true and isn't true and and they sort of felt like there's no way to tell now you just, you can't tell what's reliable and what's not reliable, and so, like, why read any of it? And that's so hard because, like, it is really tricky to tell, but Brian, you're pointing out a really important thing, which is that, you know, things that are, are factually based should have some evidence and should be able to be corroborated, and that's an important place to start, and it's really hard in a, in a time when anybody can write anything and get, and be sort of seen as equals um, in, in the sort of neutral space of social media. So, I'm sorry to slow down this conversation, but for me, in some ways, this isn't just a problem um, that's occurred within the last two years. It's, it's had roots kind of in the early to midi- middle 20th century. And so, like, for me, what I see happen when I kind of look at this historically is that in the 50s and 60s, you see a lot more questioning of traditional news outlets, sure. traditional papers saying... How do I know this is true? Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have the rise of voices that have historically been marginalized, mm-hmm. telling different histories mm-hmm. that go against traditional norms yeah. and are fact-based um, in and of themselves, yes. right? So what this does is over time it creates this ability, well, how do I know which side is right? Yeah. And so it, I think for consumers, it becomes less about what can be proven to be right as opposed to what cannot be unproven? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and, and that gets us in the... I'll use the JFK assassination as an example because, to me, like that's clear, right? Like, the prevailing opinion is that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. But you can't say with 100% certainty that there wasn't someone behind right. the grassy knoll. And so people are able to cling to that. And I think as um, technologies have changed and you have more people publishing that those opinions are more in the forefront and harder to disprove. So it's not even just the idea that it's hard to, like we need to corroborate, but it's, we also, we have to think about sources and people's intention and 
what is what do we determine as our baseline for saying something is true or something is not true? I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. It is, and I think that that growing from that, right, in in today's world, you can Photoshop somebody behind the grassy knoll. <laughs> right. Right. You can yeah. Photoshop a shark back there and be like, it was the <laughs> shark that left shark did it, right? And, and and so like our technology. That is, is a <laughs> Katy Perry Super Bowl <laughs> reference for those of you not not aware. Did I say that's old? So the the idea that that yes, not only are we sort of clinging to or making it easier to cling to sort of like one side versus the other or prove what can't prove a negative, you can't prove a negative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also sort of menacing forces who are trying to purposefully disrupt mm-hmm. for fun, for po- personal gain, for political gain, mm-hmm. for prof- you know, for for financial, financial reasons, yeah. right? And, and so it makes it, it takes all the onus off of, you know, whatever program or app or publication that is getting, um, that, that where the information is coming from, and it puts all the onus on us as readers and viewers. And I think that that's one of the reasons why teachers are struggling so much with, um, with, with this challenge, because on the one hand, they, um, teachers are trying not to sort of take a political stance necessarily in front of their classrooms. You know, they uh, Teachers try to be as impartial as possible. We can't ever eliminate all bias mm-hmm. because we're human beings, but, you know, try to always represent multiple points of view, and especially in things like history classes and in social studies classes, but even like science classes, you mm-hmm. know, presenting the content of the science in many ways then has become a political conversation. Right. I think that's one of the things that I really struggle with is here we have some really pretty grounded educational issues. Mm-hmm. How do you tell the difference between fact and fiction, mm-hmm. right? How do you understand author's intent uh, and sort of the purpose of a particular text? So these are classic literary um, literacy issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to talk about them concretely uh, ends up feeling like a political act. Ends yeah. up feeling like oh, I'm taking a political stance against against this or for this because mm-hmm. I want to talk about you know how to discern what's true and not true in in the text that we're reading and you know for the con you know for the sake of this conversation I'm not so interested in like the conservative opinion of healthcare mm-hmm. versus the liberal cons- you know opinion of healthcare and in terms of like those political ideologies but that the idea of truth telling and being a critical reader enough to say this I I can affirm that this is reliable or I can dismiss this because it's not reliable having that being connected to sort of like a, a big circle of political beliefs is really mm-hmm. troubling to me and it makes it really hard to engage in conversations without feeling like well I might say something something that offends somebody whom whom I care about yeah I and I think so if like for my planning this is something that I found like I need to think about first so how am I as an individual, not as a teacher, but how am I as an individual d- navigating this intellectual yeah. landscape and determining truth? So, I mean, I know I have my opinions, but Brian, I guess maybe start with you. Like, you talked about corroborating sources. Is there anything else that you're really using um, to distill this information for yourself? Um, no, not really. I mean, it really just, for me, it, it takes some legwork, right? Mm-hmm. It, and... and it, the easy sort of the easy way to consume information right now it appears in a Facebook feed or a Twitter feed mm-hmm. um, or even just when I go to a particular um, publication online um, it's it's there for me and the temptation is to say like well here is the here's the 
truth, here are the facts, and I just mm-hmm. receive them. Um, and it's uh, the same sort of thing that uh, we you know, caution everyone or we caution students against when it comes to um, uh, writing papers. And that's why we compel students to uh, formulate a counterclaim mm-hmm. and justify that with evidence as much as you justify your, your claim. Um, I, I, I want to sort of, as a sort of example here, um, you mentioned, uh, I'm no scholar of history of journalism, <laughs> but um, partisan journalism is not a new phenomenon. Right. right. Let's walk it back to the late 19th, early 20th century and the yellow journalism days. The muckrakers. The muckrakers, <laughs> right? And there's one particular instance that I think is sort of a, a does double duty for us here, which is the, uh, the start of the Spanish-American War. Mm-hmm. And there's a story that is popularly told in history classes that Hearst says to his correspondent, William Randolph Hearst says to his correspondent in Cuba, you furnish the photographs, I'll furnish the war. Um, Because his correspondent said there's no war here. Well, in my understanding, having read a slight bit about this, that quote itself is a myth. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, this idea that, A, we can manipulate the public uh, through photographs and reports to you know, uh, present a war that doesn't exist, Mm -hmm. well, that's a cautionary tale to us, and that's how it's often taught. But I think the second level of the cautionary tale is teachers accept, and students, because it's been passed down so, so frequently as received wisdom, this myth that Hearst actually said this. It's akin to the the Great Wall of China is visible from space. Yeah. It's not. But it's such an enduring myth um, because it's been passed down as truth or it's been passed down as fact um, mm-hmm. from generation to generation at this point. So for me, there's this this sort of um, healthy, uh, I might have called it a healthy skepticism before, but the, the general sort of uh, uh, stance of skepticism, even going way back to like the classical age, is that you don't immediately assent to a proposition that's given mm-hmm. you, that you reserve judgment, mm-hmm. you gather more information, and then mm-hmm. even when you start begin to act on the information that you have, you still have not committed, you have not pushed all your chips in and said, this is the fact. You say, well, the preponderance of evidence points me this way, but I remain open to the possibility of new evidence and new information might. Mm-hmm. So this, this sort of attitude of not settling on something as a fact, a skeptical attitude, mm-hmm. um, is the thing that I rely upon, and then that skeptical attitude drives me to do just a, even a, a little bit of research. Well, that, the ahead. research is what I want to ask you sure. about, because what is your actual corroboration process? Do you see a story on the New York Times, then go to Politico, mm-hmm. then go to Breitbart, sure. then go to Fox News? I mean, what does that actually look like? Because one, right, there could be a bias in how we do that. And so like, we have to think about that. But two, I think that's what a lot of people are struggling with is how do I determine what is true? Like, what is that corroboration process? Well, for for me, like it's like, I just have kind of two centrist publication or seemingly centrist Mm -hmm. publications on either side of the center, the times and the wall street journal. Okay. Right. And I go to those when I get it, when I when I see claims made by farther out, um, mm-hmm. either to the left or to the right, um, news outlets or you know media companies, I then sort of t- turn my attention toward the center and try mm-hmm. to corroborate either through the Times or the Journal. Um, and I have um, I am willing to accept the testimony of the Times and the Journal because of their credibility, right? And Correct. we associate. And I think this goes back to your point, Matt. That that. Even when disproven, 
many people will still believe something that was a lie, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And often that is not because of the truthiness of the statement, but rather the credibility of the speaker. Mm-hmm. And that when people are in a position of power, when they're in a position of authority, their words carry more weight, their words carry more authority, and there is an assumption mm-hmm. of credibility. Mm-hmm. Now, you can erode that credibility over time, but um, but for the most part, a lot of that credibility comes with the position. It becomes with the office, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of effort. It you know, takes twice as much effort to sort of chop down the credibility of someone in a high office than it does to build up the credibility of somebody who is without an office, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, Brian, I wanted to go back to what you were saying about sort of looking at multiple publications and seeing how are they representing a particular story as a way to sort of do that due diligence as a critical reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to point us to the standards, if you will. Turn with me, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, to standard four. Um, but the reason I want to bring this up is because uh, Common Core Literacy Standard 4 talks about interpreting the words and phrases as they're used in a text um, to determine the connotative figurative meanings and analyze how specific word choices shape meaning or tone. And this helps us to understand bias. Mm-hmm. It helps us to understand perspective. It also helps us to understand purpose. So in January, mm-hmm. uh, a, a former New York senator had an incident on an airplane. Mm-hmm. And the day that it happened, there's video of the incident and many news organizations picked it up. And I have a few of those articles, just the headlines, um, pulled up here on my computer. And I'd like to read them. And as I read them, think about class. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. But think about this standard for the interpreting the words and phrases as they're used in a text. So here's the first headline. Former Senator Alfonso D'Amato escorted off JetBlue flight after delay outburst. Okay. Escorted off. Which could be nice. <laughs> Second one. D'Amato removed from a plane after urging walkout over delays. Right. And so the remove is more hands-on than the escorted would okay. be, right? Escorted, you could picture saying, sir, come with us and walk quietly. That's right. You get an removed, escort to a dance, right? <laughs> <laughs> whereas removed is maybe you have an image of someone grabbing his arm and pushing him. Pushing out. him, pulling him, or removed yeah. by choice, right? Like, I can be escorted and go of my own volition. Mm-hmm. People are rarely removed of their own choice, mm-hmm. right? You remove someone because they're refusing to leave. Right. Here's another one. Al D'Amato kicked off JetBlue flight for ranting in aisle, right? Mm-hmm. So here we have, um, so we have escorted, and then we have removed, and now we have kicked off, right? Mm-hmm. But also you have outburst, right? You know, urging a walkout, and now that urging of a walkout is interpreted as a as ranting, right? right. His, his commentary, what he said, is being is being interpreted as ranting. Um, just two more. Former Senator Al D'Amato booted off of a flight after ranting about the flight delay. And then finally, former Senator kicked off flight after inciting a passenger rebellion. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we have everything from the left to the right, not necessarily in political terms, but in, in the sense that from like a, a very mild, you know, happenstance incident in which he, he left, right? Uh, after complaining, kind of being a little complaining. To, to an incited rebellion. And this, the little tiny words that are used in these, you know, five or six words, six or seven word headlines, 
every single word is really, really important, and it gives us clues and cues as to the purpose and the stance that the author is interpreting this event. The event itself is not in question. The facts of the event, that he was on the plane, that he was unhappy, you know, mm-hmm. he showed his displeasure through you know, speaking loudly, uh, and that then he left the plane not right. of his own choice, right? Like, those things are not in dispute if you look across these articles. But how each article characterizes the incident is extremely different. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, um, as critical readers, we, we can be paying attention to. And the standards give us the language that we can use as teachers, but also, like, as just readers to be able to say, what are the kinds of things that I should be paying attention to? Um, because if I read a very biased or a, a highly editorialized headline and I take it as the gospel truth, mm-hmm. um, then oftentimes I will be misled. Yeah, and, and I think just very quickly, uh, Roberta, in what you said, if we just as an exercise were to have students put those um, mm-hmm. those headlines side by side but, or down a, down a page. Wait, so hold on, Brian, so yeah. I'm going to stop you right here a yeah. second because I want to talk about this for students, but I want to finish sure. talking about thinking as teachers first. Mm-hmm. Because um, I want to pull out a distinction in the two kind of philosophies mm-hmm. that each of you um, articulated. I think for you, Brian, you're going on institutional credibility, right? Over time, the New York Times and Washington Post have had their biases, but they have been centrist. They have been reliable for reporting, right? That's where journalists aspire to because of the prestige, right? So I, I can trust that. And I think, Roberta, your point is I'm paying attention to the language, mm-hmm. Right, how those things are articulated and looking for those particular connotations mm-hmm. to understand the arguments that are trying to be made and how that may shade the bias so that I'm aware of that. Yeah. And if I could just say, like the trust that I put in the, the, the Times and the Journal mm-hmm. um, and the Post and other sort of mainstream centrist publications, it's not a blind trust, mm-hmm. right? This is if I want to go and sort of say like, wait. No one's really interested in blind trust anymore. There you go. <laughs> hey, definitely not. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it's not, it's, well, it's not a blind faith, let's That's say. Not- um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, I find them more credible, mm-hmm. not credible, okay. but more credible. Important and that's distinction. a distinction yeah. that is, again, that is part of the skeptic stance that I take in general. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, thank you for clarifying that because that's huge. I just, I want to offer my own mm-hmm. um, kind of take on this because, <laughs> yes, Tell I know everyone's more. dying. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. So like, I like to think about sourcing. Um, in terms of like yeah. where the information is coming from, not necessarily institutionally, but who's um, who's being sourced in a news article, sure. who's conducting a scientific study, right? Like an mm-hmm. example I like to talk about with students is research related to CTE. If you don't know what CTE is, right, it's brain damage um, that has been correlated um, to those who play football from repeated concussions and enlargement of the brain, which has significant um, ramifications for people's long-term health. So the majority of scientific research into this says that football is a cause of CTE, not just a correlation. However, funding by the NFL has found contrary evidence. So if I'm thinking about the source of that, a independent, or excuse me, an independent a research team that's just looking at the physical deformities of a brain in a deceased football player's body compared to the not independent investigation by the NFL into something that directly relates to their product and directly relates to their revenue, mm-hmm. that's going to make me more skeptical. Mm-hmm. 
um, if I'm thinking about a history book um, or a science book, right? I'm also thinking about who's being sourced. And I think what has really made my format, though, of looking sourcing incredibly complicated is that now in the Trump era, you have all these sources in newspaper articles, but so many are unnamed. Right, and they're unnamed in part because maybe they fear retribution. Yeah. Maybe they're not telling the truth. And so that makes it harder to do, but I don't know, I just wanted to offer that as another way for teachers to think about it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think what you're what you're getting at is the the stand, the investigative standard of cui bono. Yeah. Right? That is to say the good for whom or mm-hmm. who benefits mm-hmm. from this finding. Right. Right. And in your formulation with C T E, with the NFL or if research shows that CT is not caused by playing football, right? who stands to benefit from those findings? Mm-hmm. And if we then say, oh, also, that study was funded by the mm-hmm. NFL, um, then we start to, you know, your, your nose starts to prickle up a little bit. Um, and I'm being, you know, it, it, I mean, the, the bottom line of that is follow the money. Right. But, but the standard, cui bono, good for whom, mm-hmm. who stands to yeah. benefit from this situation, that's a, 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 again, this, this sort of like skeptical attitude we can take. A few months ago, I wrote on my own Facebook feed, a a little topic about how we can be critical consumers of the media and the text that we hold. And I had a few like recommended things for my friends. (laughs) Um, And the first thing I said was to identify the genre or the type of writing. Mm -hmm. Is this supposed to be news? Is this supposed Mm -hmm. to be editorialized, right? Any news show that you're watching right now that has someone's name in it is an editorial news, right? Well, I just want to pause and bring out how important that is because two days ago, Sean Hannity and Ted Koppel actually had an argument about Mm -hmm. this. Sean Hannity arguing that people can tell difference between ideology and news reporting. You don't have to make that distinction. Whereas Ted Koppel said, yes, you do. Whether you're conservative or liberal, you have to say, I am no longer telling you news. I'm now telling you my opinion about the news. I'm interpreting this, right? And so not all current event, not all writing or um, presentation of current events is news a lot mm-hmm. of it is editorial it's opinion and all of those things can be you know a blog you know a satire or a parody any mm-hmm. of those different genres they have a different litmus test for how true something needs to be or how much corroboration it mm-hmm. needs in order for me to be able to report it the second recommendation i made was that you have to read actually past the headline to, right. to your point right you have to look at the evidence are there links? Are there, are there mm-hmm. like, does it link you to an actual, like, story or a report? Mm-hmm. Um, is it linking you to scientific evidence? And we should be suspicious of things that are just sort of generally saying, yeah, everybody said so. <laughs> and, like, there's, there's no su- sources cited about how that person got that information. And the, the third recommendation was, like, you have to look for both sides of the story, right? Looking at, like, well, some people are saying this and other people are saying that. The truth is probably possibly somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. and then paying attention to those rhetorical devices you know, and that's you know sort of my thing is like where are in the words and phrases standard four for the win uh, where are those words and phrases <laughs> that we can really be looking at um, to help us to see how someone is interpreting something and what their purpose is for writing it yeah and so We've talked about ways that we kind of check for reliability, but now I want to start moving or inching towards the classroom. Mm -hmm. So now let's say I have these methods that I use. I'm still going to have a political bias, right? Like Theodore Adorno, what, 1968 or something? Yeah, nobody knows who that is. (laughs) Great literary critic. (laughs) 
but says, right, that even being apolitical is actually a political mm-hmm. stance. Yeah. Right? So it's impossible to not be political. So I'm a teacher now. I'm bringing this in. How do I deal with my political bias? Mm-hmm. Like, how do I present myself in these facts mm-hmm. to students? <laughs> don't 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 all answer at once. <laughs> so I think I think first of all, it might be useful to just quickly think about the word political and, okay. and what we mean by political, right? Um, in uh, current discourse in the United States, political means Democrat Republican. Hmm. Um, what really, if we want to walk it back a little bit to you know its its etymo- etymological mm-hmm. meaning, right? Of the polis, of the city, of the community, hmm. right? So all acts are political acts because unless you are Robinson Crusoe stranded on an island literally by yourself mm-hmm. like let's even take Friday out of this mm-hmm. right then everything every action you take even speech acts has an impact on another person hence it is political mm-hmm. so that said all of our actions are political at all times right now there let's let's now let's we'll get out of the weeds um, now in, if we're talking about it in terms of how do teachers recognize their own mm-hmm. um, political, as we use it con- in a contemporary setting, being um, uh, voting and mm-hmm. policies, um, how do teachers recognize their bias? How do they put it forward um, in a way that isn't an advocation? Advocacy, thank mm-hmm. you. <laughs> Although I'd like to take an advocation later. Um, uh, advocacy of a particular uh, uh, political leaning, but to, to say, this is my belief. It is not the necessarily the correct one, and it's not one that I'm telling you that you need to have, mm-hmm. students. Um, but I want to let you know, as I'm presenting certain questions or certain facts to you, um, that you should recognize where I'm coming from in that. Um, so for me, this question of having teachers be uh, have a little bit of self-awareness about their bias or their standpoint, and then perhaps putting that forward to their students in a very frank way yeah. um, and letting them know that this isn't the truth, right? This is my from my standpoint, from my perspective, from my recognizing my bias. I just had a conversation with my kid about this a couple weeks ago during some of the Senate confirmations, and mm-hmm. I listened to the news on my way to drop him off from school, drop him off at school, and so and so you know occasionally from time to time <laughs> there might be rumblings, <laughs> and so you know I'm getting sort of agitated about something, and he he asks me, oh what's going on, and you know he's ten, so he's. He's not super aware, but he pays attention and mm-hmm. he hears things. Um, and, and I told him, I said, you know, I really struggle sometimes when we're talking because I have very strong opinions about, like, the way the world should work mm-hmm. and about, you know, who what decisions should be made for the people, for the community. Um, but I don't want to unduly influence you as you're sort of learning about the world and making your mind up about the world. And so I'm not sure whether or not I should tell you to think what I think, mm-hmm. right, and 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 lay out my argument to think what I think, or whether or not I should present both sides, both opinions equally, and let you make up your own mind, or whether we should just not talk about it at all until you're older, right? Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, he's a great kid, so he he says something like, "Well, I think you can tell me your opinion, um, but I'd like to know like both sides of the story, but you can tell me wow. which side you're on." Right? <laughs> and, and and we started our conversation. 
He's a pretty nice guy. <laughs> but we started our conversation rather than me telling him, well, this is who I think should or shouldn't be voted for. Mm-hmm. We started with, what do you think the criteria are for this role or that role? What kind of background or uh, resume should a person have in order to do this kind of job? And so one of the ways that, that I think that as a teacher we can think about engaging our students is first, rather than through the promotion of information, actually laying the groundwork through questioning, Mm -hmm. right? What prior knowledge do they have? What are they thinking about already? And where in our students' lives can we connect them to things they already know and understand and help them to make connections, you know, and whether those are sort of connections to our current events and critically thinking and problem-solving through our current climate, or if those are just the you know the critical questions around a text that they're reading in history class or a scientific text that they're reading that's that's not part of the current events conversation but it it is presenting a sort of non objective set of information so i think starting with questions is a really great way for teachers to be able to engage their students in understanding a text yeah and i think so, like, again, I think we have differing opinions, and <laughs> I also have a different opinion, but I just want to summarize kind of what I'm hearing from you guys before I state my own, and that's, Brian, you're saying, like, hey, we're all political, like, be honest with your students about it, yeah. and then allow, hopefully building that trust mm-hmm. and that confidence and saying, don't just believe this because I have this political leaning determined for yourself, will create um, stability within the classroom and will create a less biased mm-hmm. classroom. And Roberta, you're kind of saying, like, you know what, I'm not going to do that first. The first thing I'm going to do is have students articulate their own criteria for quality information and then give them that information or their own political criteria for what makes a decent presidential candidate and then look at the presidential candidates after they've determined that. Is that that right? Well, I wouldn't say that I'm not going to do what Brian suggested, which is that I think that examining one's own like one's own belief, like mm-hmm. I need to examine and understand my own bias. And and that that's what I have to do like in my family, that's what I have to do in the classes that I teach. That's mm-hmm. what we always have, I think it's we first start with ourselves, right? Where is it that I'm falling? Where is it that I might have a blind spot about mm-hmm. like things that I may or may not present? That's true even when we're thinking about teaching styles. I'm a visual learner. Not all my kids are. Some of my kids are mm-hmm. going to be auditory learners. So I need to know that I'm visual to make sure that I'm representing, supporting for my visual learners, but also supporting mm-hmm. for auditory learners. So I think that, like, Brian's point is is a good point. That's a great place to start. And I think after that, my next step would be okay. to engage my students through critical questioning mm-hmm. so that they can start to have a context from which to take on this information, regardless of what the information is, whether it's, like, you know, we're reading Catcher in the Rye, or we're, you know, looking at meiosis and mitosis. That's my science topic that I always <laughs> reference, my example. Um, so regardless of the the text that we're reading or the information that we're trying to take in, mm-hmm. the teacher needs to recognize, I have a perspective about this. What is my perspective? How might I make sure that I present a balanced perspective? My PowerPoint is not a podium for my mm-hmm. political ideology, right? Yeah, I think also, too, it might be useful to take a second to think about a, a really huge question, which is, um, what is the purpose of schooling and what is the purpose of education? And that's a really, really huge question, but I want to boil it down to, to, to one sort of notion here, which is, for me, the purpose of schooling is not to deliver facts. Mm-hmm. It's not so that the per- student will leave the school with a collection of facts in their brain, able to use them as they will. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I take the purpose of schooling to be, uh, rather than the acquisition of facts, the development of the faculty of judgment. Mm -hmm. right? And so if I present my bias and then say, here are facts that, um, that I have determined, or here are some information that I have determined to be factual having exercised my judgment. Mm -hmm. That's my mm -hmm. recognition of, of, mm -hmm. of my bias or my, my, um, my acknowledgement of my bias to my students. But then the purpose of all of this mm -hmm. is to develop in students this faculty of judgment, this uh, sort of intellectual agency, yeah. so that they can then independently determine fact from fiction. And mm -hmm. it's not to say these are the facts, but here's how you might go about determining what the right. facts are. And that's a that's a big, um, not, not everyone believes that to be the purpose yeah. of education, the purpose of schooling. And I think that's what really is, is necessary these days. And that, but that, that's my bias. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I just, I want to add another lens to this conversation because, I mean, with my teaching, I, I dealt with this issue um, twice. I mean, both the Romney-Obama election and the Clinton-Trump election, working with students. And I came to term with my own political bias. Like, I agree that that was completely necessary. But I found it problematic to voice what my political beliefs were to students, even to say, just so you know that I have this, in the fear that, ooh, Mr. Kautz thinks this, yeah. I'm going to think this. So how I tried to deal with this is I would have what I called political Fridays in my classroom, and we would take any number of issues, whether it was gun violence in Chicago when I taught in Chicago, whether it was Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, and present opposing opinions mm -hmm. to students and then say, okay, I want you first, before you come to a conclusion, determine what the evidence is yeah. in this text, which is stronger and why. Yeah. And that would be the starting point of the conversation before the analysis. So in a way, I could see what I was doing as political because obviously I think there's a stronger set of evidence that students are going to come to, but I was trying to remove that yeah. as much as possible. Yeah. There's a great poem by Taylor Molly called Like Lily, Like Wilson. And uh, in it, he describes as an eighth grade teacher giving his, his students a research paper to do. Mm -hmm. And she decides that she wants to research and write an argument that homosexuals should not be allowed to adopt children. Mm -hmm. And the poem uh, is about his struggle as a teacher to have created an assignment where his student is going to try to prove something that he is morally opposed to, mm -hmm. right? And and whether or not he should stop her from researching that or whether or not he should intervene or state his opinion. Uh, and, and, and it goes on. And, you know, in that particular incident, which is uh, a, a poem about an experience that he had, mm -hmm. what she found in her research process was that there was not enough evidence to support that opinion. Mm -hmm. And was it okay if she changed her mind? Yeah. Right? And I think that that's one way that we can trust the education process mm -hmm. and we can trust that what we are building you know, at least what we're trying to help teachers to build at CPET mm -hmm. is critical thinkers. And that means critical thinkers, critical readers, critical writers, critical researchers. And those critical researchers don't accept blindly what is in front of them, but rather look for the evidence, look for the sourcing. They look to put multiple ideas from multiple places in conversation with each other so that they can come to new conclusions. And I, I you know, I think that like, 
especially when we have strong feelings and depending on a teacher's relationship with their students, they Mm -hmm. may choose to reveal a personal bias uh, about a topic. But I think more than revealing, whether you say, oh, I feel this way politically or I feel Mm -hmm. that way, um, what's important is to acknowledge for one's own self. Mm -hmm. And that if I recognize for myself, I have an opinion about this, then I want to be mindful about how I present information for my students, that that's, I think, the first key. And whether I share my political opinion or I don't, right, because our words um, have impact based on our position, too, right? right? And so to your point, like, well, if if this kid likes me Mm -hmm. and I say that I believe this, they're more likely to believe that. If this kid doesn't like me and I say I believe this, they're more likely to not because of personal relationship and and sort of a, a position and authority. Um, so I think that presenting, you know, multiple points of view and then giving students opportunities where they actually have to sit with and work through that information to draw their own conclusions uh, in, a, in a rigorous, you know, activity or lesson or project is one of the best things that we can help them. Yeah, and I think that goes back to Brian's point, too, about the purpose of schooling, Yeah. right? Um, which now thinking about a teacher actually within a school, so now I've wrestled with these philosophical questions. And if you're like me, probably haven't come to an answer, but you at least have some direction where you're going. Now I'm in the classroom. How am I teaching my students to navigate the landmines of falsehoods in this country right now? Like, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Well, let me, I'll come back to, to the point I, I started um, that you delayed for here, rightly, I'd say, because... Um, <laughs> No, I mean, it, it makes sense that, so let's take those five headlines or four headlines that, that Roberta shared with us around mm-hmm. around the same episode that yeah. happened. Alphonse D'Amato is on a plane, then he's off the plane, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I say that because that's all I know yeah. at this point. But that's all you can say for certain is a fact. Right. He was at one place at one point and then not at the other. Exactly right. And then if we then just take those headlines and mm-hmm. we put five headlines on a on a page or on a screen or a whiteboard and then ask guide students through the process of saying what do these headlines have in common yeah. mm-hmm. and what do they have that is different, mm-hmm. right? And this is getting to the notion of low inference, low inference observation, mm-hmm. low inference information. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the sort of ways that I talk about low inference with teachers often is um, I, I have heard from, from many teachers who will make a claim, my students can't read, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And I say that that's a claim and not a fact mm-hmm. because I'll ask them, how do you know? Well, they didn't, I gave them a quiz and they all failed. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, so all you know is that they didn't complete the task that you set for them. Right. You don't know that they can't read. So all we know is, we don't know if D'Amato was angry, which was a, a, a claim I'd mm-hmm. say that you made, which is only like sort of a, a bit of an inference, sure. but it's still an inference, mm-hmm. right? So all we know is Amato was on a plane, he said something, and then he was off the plane. Mm-hmm. These are our facts. So once we have that sort of, once we can, with students, kind of distill a bunch of headlines down to the agree, the, the yeah. facts we can agree upon, now we start looking at the diction and the syntax of those headlines to try to reveal bias, mm-hmm. to and, and then we start to bring in the language of claim rather than fact or evidence. And that exercise, I think, um, is useful for students just to, just, I mean, if we want to use the language of descriptive versus normative right. um, or evidence versus claim, um, but just uh, the, the notion that we want to strip away as much inference, conjecture, mm-hmm. supposition as possible 
to just get down to observations. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, build up a case or a claim. You mean like standard eight, where we would delineate <laughs> and evaluate the argument and specific claims in a text, including the validity of the reasoning as well as the relevance and sufficiency of the evidence. Exactly. So they're in your in your in your anchor standards for sure. But then also like this this pops up in the writing standards yeah. as well. If I go to uh, I'm looking at the writing standards for nine and ten. Um, the standard B is develop claims and counterclaims yeah. fairly. Yeah. Supplying evidence for each while pointing out the strengths and limitations yeah. of both. Yeah. In a you know this is this that's is right. yeah derived from the anchor standard that you point out. No, that's right, and I think that that's where the reading and the writing standards have this great overlap because it's in the reading standards that I figure out how to take that information in and what to do with it, but it's in the writing standards that I express what it is that I understand. Right. So I can't say what it is that I understand from what I've read without speaking or writing, yeah. right? And I can't take in information without reading or mm -hmm. listening. Mm -hmm. And so there are places where a lot of times in the standards themselves or in our classes, classrooms, we have like my reading time and then I have my writing time. I have a reading assignment and then a writing assignment. And and this is, I think, a great example of how those are actually they're the same tasks, yeah. right? And how I'm taking in information, what I'm doing with it, how I'm sorting it, how I'm coding it, how I'm putting it in conversation with other pieces, and then how I communicate what it is I understand now. That is sort of a reading and writing arc. Yeah, and well, I mean, I have some... I think we need to discuss more about how teachers can do this, but I think the other thing is you guys are making the implicit argument that Common Core is actually more important maybe in this current political climate with Trump as president than ever before because the standards push for an accountability of students, yeah. whether it's the reading of information and determining what is true and what is untrue yeah. claims and counterclaims, or it's presenting that information. Um, but something that I think also goes along with the standards, but maybe beyond it because it's implicit in the standards and not written in the standards, is teaching sourcing and vetting mm -hmm. and what is explicitly in the standards, increasing the modalities of information mm -hmm. where students are doing this distillation of mm -hmm. truth and falsehoods. Yeah. I mean, watching uh, a news report or an interview and determining bias in that, that's not a skill that we traditionally teach students, but considering the world that they live in where they might go home and on the Twitter feed, see a one minute and 30 second video mm -hmm. and say, oh my God, this is true without thinking about, am I corroborating this? Am I checking the source on yeah. this? Is there more context that I need right. to know? Um, those are just some of the thoughts I'm having. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's like, uh, the, 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 I think the, the, the question here is like, how do we, how does a teacher do that? Mm -hmm. Right, like what are the the techniques that you can go ahead and use in the class? Mm -hmm. And part of it is this this sifting and this sorting, and it's holding multiple accounts of the same event next to mm -hmm. each other and trying to say like if we can strip away all of the differences and to say these are we have multiple sources here and this parcel this quantum of information mm -hmm. is the only thing that's common in all of these different accounts, mm -hmm. then perhaps we can say that is fact. Mm. With We can be most certain that that's factual. Um, but then we start to, anything, anytime where the accounts come into conflict with each other, mm -hmm. then it requires more investigation. And this, this is a, this is, 
this is a stance. This is a habit of mine. Well, I think this is a circular conversation now. Yeah. Right. Because this is what we were talking about, what we do as individuals. And so what, what we're being pushed to do now is what we do individuals teach students to That's do right. as individuals. Exactly right. And I think the question is, like, how do we do that, right? Mm-hmm. And that can feel really, really overwhelming. So mm-hmm. one idea that you had, which I think is a great idea, is, like, taking these things that have sort of slightly different interpretations and let's put them all in a row so that we can mm-hmm. see them. The idea that we can look at language or sort of, like, how words change or how uh, one the changing of one word changes the mm-hmm. meaning of the whole thing. The difference between removed, escorted, kicked, booted, right? Mm-hmm. The difference between... Uh, what was it, like rebellion, inciting a rebellion, and is upset. Like those are ways that we can understand how language and how those words are sort of marked with different gradations, sort of different levels of um, emotion or violence, right? Exactly, yeah, thanks. Um, I think there are some other things that we can do as well. So, Matt, you had a great example of sort of like laying out mm-hmm. different facts. There's a great website called procon.org. Mm. Um, I'll double check that everything is procon.org. And they have like all sorts of different controversial issues or different current event issues. And what they do is they give you a list of the facts that are pro- for that issue and then the facts that are like against that stance. And you can um, take them and sort of, I like to cut them out Mm -hmm. and then give kids sort of like a little envelope of statements. And then students have to then resort the statements that are the pro side and that are the con side. Because that actually is a skill. It's a learned skill. Mm -hmm. It's not something that we can take for granted that kids have. That sort of critical thinking to be able to categorize, sort, and organize information into groups that hang together. So they sort the information and then decide, well, which one has more evidence, which Mm -hmm. evidence is more compelling, can I write about that, you know, switch sides, those kinds of things can be really helpful in developing some of those critical thinking skills. Yeah, well, just another thing about pro-con, I remember using that in my classroom, and I'd find, like, some of these aren't facts, they're opinions, Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, man, I have to get rid of this, and I was like, wait, yes, no, I don't, I need to leave this in so students can practice that process, and so... Another thing that, like, I think is helpful for teachers to think about is go back to your teacher ed program, <laughs> think about Bloom's taxonomy, yeah. and you're going up on cognitive levels. And there's a there's a minute but important distinction between um, analysis mm-hmm. and evaluation. Yes. An analysis is that the teacher or the student is given a criteria mm-hmm. and they analyze a document with that criteria. Mm-hmm. Evaluation is students determine what the criteria is, and then evaluate the document, the lab report, based on their own criteria. So as a teacher, I think you can think about a two-step process where, one, okay, I'm going to develop with my students what is adequate criteria for um, the fiction novel that we're reading, the lab report that we're studying, um, the math problem that we're looking at, or the historical issue that we're bringing to bear, Um, But then I can scaffold to the point where students come up with that criteria from themselves, give them a new topic, say, what criteria do we need to evaluate this, and let them demonstrate that and come to that understanding for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I I think that, like, the importance of this, and one of the reasons that some of this work doesn't happen in classrooms Mm -hmm. right now is because we really are still so beholden to our tests mm, yeah. or still so beholden to the content that we have to cover that 
it's hard for teachers to determine that I should take time. Mm-hmm. I should be able that, that I can I can spend a few days working on developing these critical thinking right. skills. But at, you know, with the onset of the Common Core, which specifically outlines uh, many of these skills and the ways that our tests are changing, mm-hmm. it's more important now than ever to really make sure that these topics have a privileged place in our classrooms. The, the expectations of what students are able to do on mm-hmm. demand when they taking in new information and how they read through that and what they're able to produce in a short period of time, those expectations are rising. And it's these skills, um, not necessarily like sort of like massive content knowledge, mm-hmm. but it's the skill of being able to read critically, sort information, reorganize it, and take a stance that mm-hmm. is really going to be the difference between being successful or, or, or sort of showing proficiency on mm-hmm. some of these exams. This is where I think um, you, you walked us back to teacher ed program, so mm-hmm. I'll do the same. And, you know, a standard pedagogical technique is modeling. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think uh, teachers uh, uh, indicating and acknowledging their bias publicly in front of their students mm. comes in very handy yeah. because what teachers can then do is use that to model the process of arriving at decisions mm. of fact I feel like we're heading to some metacognition here. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and I mean, like, this is also, like, if you, if you the, the language that, is being used a lot right now around this notion of modeling is making thinking visible. Mm -hmm. So I think that teachers ought to make their thinking visible to their Mm -hmm. students so that there's not so that their students can imitate it, but so that their students can imitate the idea of a process, right? right? Like here is my process Mm -hmm. to own it, to, to, to say, this is how I do it. Right. I didn't just say, you know, uh, because they told me so, or I didn't, uh, you know, I have a process that allows me to make what I think are good decisions. I don't mm-hmm. know what your process is, but I just want to show you mine. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I like that idea. And I also like, while it may be a little contrived, I like the idea of here's my process of how I'm going to change my mind. Yeah. Right? How I allow my, so I'm, I, I think this, when I start reading this, this text, and then as I go through it aloud doing this modeling, now I receive information that disrupts or challenges my initial opinion. And that modeling of how I allow a text to change my opinion about something I think is could be really powerful for Yeah, kids. but I mean, this, this notion of contrived, I want to say that um, the word contrived has a negative connotation perhaps, mm. but I don't think that it ought to because I would say like, planning a lesson is contrived, sure. right? It's mm-hmm. intentional, it's structured, it's scaffolded. Right. So, how should teaching or modeling this for students be any less so? No, I definitely um, think y- y- it should. Yeah, I definitely think it should be planned. Yeah. And prepared. I, I guess where I'm thinking about contrived is I don't want to pretend to change my mind about something or oh, pretend no, no. to have an opinion that I don't really have. No. I mean, in those situations, I feel like I want to be as authentic as possible in my modeling. Yeah. Um, but that's why I was like, well, this might be a place where I go. Yeah, I'm gonna show like I have. You know, I'm gonna maybe reproduce a situation in which a a text could change my mind. Yeah, I mean, something that I just want to voice here, because Roberta, um, your previous comment, and then Brian, what you said, something that, like, I really started thinking about is, this isn't easy to do as a teacher, not just because, like, the philosophical issues that we discussed at the beginning, but administration may be hesitant to let you do this kind of work with your students in the fear of someone saying indoctrination Mm -hmm. is happening because of this accountability to what is often, although slightly changing, or multiple choice tests, Mm -hmm. where this kind of nuanced opinion can kind of fall by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So I I just, 
I don't necessarily have an answer for that. I know the way that I navigated that, but I think it would be unfair to have this conversation in the abstract and not talk about that tangible reality. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, I think that when we do our assessment series, we can get more <laughs> into the fun topics of tests and assessments. But one of the things that we're seeing trending is that assessments are changing. Mm-hmm. And assessment designers and policymakers are starting to recognize that the true multiple choice test that gives you, you know, four answers and I have to, mm-hmm. you know, do my best process of elimination is it actually doesn't tell us what kids know. Mm-hmm. It only tells us what kids don't know. And that's not super helpful. So in every single exam, in New York State at least, in every single exam, in every single content area, there are there are short response questions, there are constructed response questions, and, and in some there are longer essays. And both the English and the social studies exams in New York State require two uh, long-form um, written responses, and in the science and the math uh, assessments there are longer constructed response where students have to take information over a course of multiple questions and come up with their own problem or their own design or their own experiment. So in in that way, our assessments are shifting to demand that students are showing that they can demonstrate these skills. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I want to come back around to what you said about uh, administration Mm -hmm. might be a little bit um, uh, uneasy uh, with this approach um, and say two things. Um, Number one is... um, the difference between uh, controversy and provocation, mm-hmm. right? That um, good teaching will provoke conversation. It will yes. provoke thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not meant to foster controversy or conflict. And um, school leaders, I think, rightly want to avoid conflict. They mm-hmm. rightly want to avoid controversy. They should embrace provocation. Yes. Now, that said, I say should embrace provocation, mm-hmm. but that sometimes provocation can look like controversy or conflict, or perhaps as a teacher, we're not quite doing it right, and we're hmm. aiming for provocation, we're ending up with conflict. Yes. And if that's the case, what I would encourage teachers to do is invite their school leaders into their classrooms yes. mm. and say, take a look at what I'm doing. I would love your part, I'd love you to be involved in a conversation with me about doing this right and doing yes. this well. Yeah. Um, and that uh, the idea is when school leaders don't know what's going on in the classroom, that's when they can um, uh, perhaps ask you to rein things in yeah. um, just because they want to avoid conflict and controversy. Again, rightly avoid that. So be mindful of that, that line between provocation and conflict, and then also um, involve your school leaders in the conversation um, as a professional development mm-hmm. strategy, but then also as a way to make your thinking visible yep. to your school leader. Yep. Yep. So we're getting low on time. We've had a wide-ranging philosophical discussion of truth and if it exists and how to navigate it, and my head hurts a little bit. Um, talked about kind of things for teachers and in the classroom. And so I'm just wondering, as we wrap up this conversation that is so relevant, what are, you, are there any final thoughts that you all have that we have not touched upon but you think are important for teachers to consider? I think that the thing that I keep coming back to is that we have to be critical consumers mm-hmm. um, and producers. So we need to be ourselves and in our classroom, we need to be engaging in critical reading um, and and responsible writing or communicating, um, whether it's about uh, current events or historical events mm-hmm. or literary you know ex- explorations or the sciences. But we, we can't take everything 
um, or rather anything at face mm-hmm. value. We have to be critical thinkers about it. Yeah, I know a way that to try to sum up what I mentioned about a little bit about purpose um, of schooling is um, I would encourage teachers um, to consider the work that they're doing not a question of telling students what to think mm-hmm. or perhaps even telling them how to think but teaching them to think <laughs> um, and that's uh, this uh, again getting back to this notion of sort of an intellectual agency that we want to mm-hmm. cultivate in our students um, that um, it's not about the facts that they need to know mm-hmm. um, it's about the their ability to weigh those facts and decide yeah. which ones are most meaningful most valuable and um, most credible mm-hmm. um, so I kind of have two one's just real just short <laughs> no I get, do, okay, I get to do I get to do what I seriously Jeez. Um, but so the first one goes back to something said earlier and I think when teaching these skills there does need to be consideration of changing technologies and changing um, dispersal of information. You can't just think about applying these skills to a textbook, to a science um, report. You need to think about how do I apply this to Twitter? How do I apply this to Facebook? Um, How do I apply this to podcasts, right? Because those are more popular than ever um, to most benefit students. But my final thought, and I think to me is something that really... Um, is implicit in the conversation but hasn't been said and is incredibly important is the idea that as a teacher you're also teaching your students how to conduct discourse Mm -hmm. Uh, respectful argumentation for students to have differing opinions but not necessarily go to war over them whether that means being mean to each other in the hall having students develop a disposition where they say okay you disagree with with me, but that doesn't mean I disrespect you as a person. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we don't have great role models mm-hmm. doing that right now, but I think it's imperative that we teach that yes. um, to our students. And kind of going along with that, that teachers be okay that students come to different conclusions than themselves. Mm-hmm. You may present these techniques, and students may use them and come to different conclusions. Um, and I think that's really hard to do mm-hmm. because teachers typically have um, a bent in how they view the world because their profession is to help people, but that, that has to be put aside for the better of the education of the student. Cosign. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us today. And if you're still having issues um, thinking about this for your classroom and implementing, please reach out to us. We'd love to come check out your classroom and help you out. You can email us at cpet underscore admin Um, And keep tuning in, subscribe, and provide us any feedback. Bye. Thanks, y'all.